know, you could literally divide up all history into three stages of creation. All history is three stages of creation. There was the first creation in the beginning. There will be the new creation at the end. And in between those two is the uncreation. The first creation, the new creation, and the uncreation. The first creation was, of course, in the beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, Genesis chapter 1. The new creation is, of course, at the end of the age, in the future, when God will create a new heavens and a new earth and restore again the paradise which once was lost, and he will make all things be the way they ought to be, that is the new creation, Revelation 21 and 22. But in between those two acts of creation is the uncreation, the decreation, the anti-creation, the counter-creation, the desolation of creation, and the utter destruction of the entire created Order when God rips open the cosmos and lays it naked and bare in the fires of his wrath. That's the uncreation. When he tears the whole thing apart in a series of judgments at the end of the age in the open display of his righteous wrath and his terrible sovereign fury. That is the uncreation coming in the future. And when it's all over the planet, it will be nearly unrecognizable from the form in which you see it today. You understand in that day, the world will be fire and blood. The world will crumble. The cities will explode. All of the apocalyptic terrors that Hollywood tried to capture with their movie magic and CGI will be real but worse. This will be the sum of all fears. Nightmares come true. The very end of the world as we know it, but it will not be from global warming or the melting of the ice caps or World War III or monsters from outer space. No, it will be the unmitigated rage of a righteous God who after centuries and centuries of patient endurance with the evils of men and the rebellion of the human race will break into history and literally uncreate the world he made good in the beginning. That's the uncreation. And that is exactly what Isaiah shows us in the text this morning. And although this period of judgment has lots of names in the Bible by which it's called, the time of Jacob's distress, Daniel's 70th week, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, the day of vengeance, the hour of testing, it's most famously known in the Bible as the Great Tribulation, or as I'm going to call it, the Tribulation Uncreation. You know that we're in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet, and one of the things that prophets did was reveal the future and what God has planned for the end of the age, which is precisely what the prophet does in chapters 24 through 27. And you can tell that I'm calling this series of sermons on this particular portion of Isaiah the little apocalypse. 
the little apocalypse. Apocalypse meaning the destruction of the world. And by little, I mean that it's shorter than the book of Revelation. And the word revelation is the word apocalypsis, revelation. The, the point is, Isaiah does in chapters 24 through 27 what John does in Revelation 6 through 22, namely unfold in shocking, high-definition, high-octane language exactly how God is going to uncreate the cosmos and then recreate the cosmos in the kingdom. Over the next few weeks, that's exactly what we're going to see. And you know why, don't you? You know why it is that there is prophecy in the sacred text. You know why it is that God tipped his hand to the prophets and revealed what he's planned for the end of the age. You know why he puts in his word little sneak previews for how the world is going to end and begin again. You know why he does that precisely to liberate his people, to emancipate his people to free his people, to empower his people, to embolden his people, to console and encourage and thrill and exhilarate his people. He gives us texts like Isaiah 24 through 27 and Revelation 6 through 22 to unleash in us radical hope and invincible faith as we face the terrors of a fallen world. That's why eschatology is in the Bible. That's why it matters. That's exactly what drove me to drag you through three plus years, the prophet Isaiah. Because what Isaiah and the other prophets give us is what I call the power of the prophetic, the armor of the apocalyptic, meaning come hell or high water, whatever dangers may face the church, whatever schemes of the evil one, whatever rage and assaults of Satan's army against the church, eschatology is the armor that helps us not cower in fear. So what we need in fearful times in which danger and evil abound, is not just theology, but in particular, eschatology. And even more particularly, apocalyptic visions of how the world is going to end and how the world is going to begin again. That's exactly what Isaiah gives us, and so let's go to the text. If you have notes this morning, either way, this is where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text two present responses. Two present responses to the future wrath and reign of the king. Two present responses to the future wrath and reign of the king. The vision breaks down in three parts. Part one is this. First, the imminent uncreation. The imminent uncreation, the tribulation terrors coming upon the earth. Now, if you think about it, Chapters 24 through 27 make perfect sense in the logical order of Isaiah's book. You see, if the question of chapters 7 through 12 was, who should you trust? The answer given by chapters 13 through 23 is, here is who you should not trust. Do not trust the nations. Do not fear the nations. Do not look to pagan foreign powers to do what Yahweh is alone able to do. Do not trust or fear the nations. And we spent five weeks in chapters 13 through 23 in which, in which were found a series of prophetic, poetic, 
sermons of judgment against the nation called oracles. And, but you see, the reason why you do not need to fear nor trust the nations is precisely because God at the end of the age is going to break into human history in a unique way that he has not done before. And when he does, two things are going to happen. One, he is going to devastate the nations in the fires of his wrath. And two, he will then rule over the nations in the glory of his power. That's why you don't need to fear. That's why you don't need to trust the nations. Because God is going to destroy the world in the tribulation, and then he's going to restore the world in the kingdom of his son. That's chapters 24 through 27, and it begins with a bang in verses 1 through 3. Look at the text. Behold, Yahweh. Notice carefully how I rendered this. Yahweh is about to lay the earth waste. And he is about to devastate it. He will destroy its surfaces and he will scatter its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest. And the slave will be like their masters. And the maid will be like her mistress. And the one who buys like the one who sells. The one who borrows like the one who lends. The creditor will be like the debtor. The world will surely be laid waste. It will surely be plundered, for Yahweh has spoken this word. That is vintage, classic, apocalyptic language right there. You can totally tell that he's talking about destruction. But you can see also that this is not localized or limited to the Middle East or Jerusalem. Rather, this is global, worldwide, planetary destruction that we're talking about here, and it is Yahweh himself who will cause it. You notice there in verses 1 and 3 that the earth is clearly the scene. It's clearly the object of God's fury. And I'll have you know that that word earth is mentioned 29 times in chapters 24 through 27. But 16 of those occurrences are right here in chapter 24. And the text is clear and unmistakable. The entire planet will be laid waste. It will be devastated. It will be disturbed. It will be plundered. It will be shaken, it will be staggered, it will be smashed, it will be shattered. Millions, probably billions of people are going to die. All the joy will vanish from the face of the planet. Those are the words that Isaiah uses to describe not what has happened in the past, but what will happen in the future. And when I say the future, I don't mean 500 years from now, I mean tomorrow. Or next week, or October, or 2025, or 500 years from now, or whenever it is that God decides to intervene in the fires of his wrath. Because that's what the word imminency means. Imminency means any moment now, or is about to happen. Or may or may not happen in the blink of an eye, which is exactly why I translate verse 1 as Yahweh is about to lay the earth waste and he is about to devastate it because everything in this chapter could very well could explode upon the world without a moment's notice or God could wait another 2,000 years or anywhere in between when he decides to pull the trigger. That's what imminency means. And let me be clear with you at the outset. On biblical theological grounds, I do not believe that the church, that authentic believers will endure the tribulation. 
Persecution and martyrdom, absolutely. That is going to happen. But not the global judgment of the tribulation. And not everyone's agreed on this point, and that's totally fine. But on the basis of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 3.10, I am persuaded that the church will be removed by Christ from the earth in a sovereign evacuation project called the rapture. You don't have to call it that, but I hope you believe it. Now, we, all, we should also make clear that the book of Revelation makes abundantly clear that people will get saved in the midst and during the tribulation. But I am convinced that the church will be extracted by Christ before the horrors of the tribulation. And so listen very carefully. When I connect the eschatological dots of the Bible, I understand that the only thing keeping the tribulation terrors from breaking upon the earth is, in fact, the rapture. Meaning. The rapture could literally happen at any second in the blink of an eye, which means the tribulation terrors are a rapture away from breaking upon the earth. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be October. It could be 2025, or it could be 500 years from now. And what that does, you understand, is give us perspective and joy and urgency and perseverance, and it gives us the impetus to live our lives with radical intentionality, does it not? And so watch, watch a stunning preview in the text of when Yahweh literally decreates the planet, starting in verse 1. Isaiah says, Yahweh is about to lay the earth waste, and he is about to devastate it. And he will overturn its surfaces, distort its surfaces, and scatter its inhabitants. Notice that Isaiah begins with behold, which again sounds like Shakespeare, but what that is is a rhetorical device. It's a way to prepare you to be shocked or scared or alarmed or all of the above because what God is about to do is shocking and alarming to say the least. Because what Isaiah says is about to, what God is about to do, notice he, Yahweh is about to lay waste and empty out the earth. Do you see that? there in the text. What is so profound about those two verbs is not only that they rhyme in the Hebrew, but that the sound they make together is the sound of pouring out a bottle. Bolek, bokek, bolek, bokek. That's what it sounds like in the Hebrew. Like pouring out a bottle. That's on purpose. That's, that's a vivid picture of what Yahweh is going to do to the entire human race, namely pour them out in judgment and wrath. The bottle is the world. The people are the water. And God is going to empty out that bottle, which means people are going to die. Lots and lots of people and if you take the, book of, the numbers of, book, of the book of Revelation serious, and I do, we're talking billions and billions of people. Next, Isaiah says that in the great uncreation, God is going to literally distort, twist the surface of the earth and scatter its inhabitants. You see that? I think we're talking the literal mangling of the earth with fires and meteors and earthquakes and cataclysmic disasters that will make people run for their lives because that's exactly what Revelation chapters 8 and 9 depict. And should something like this happen, and this is going to happen, every 
single societal structure that we use to organize society will be shattered and meaningless. Look at verse 2. People and priest will be indistinguishable. Slave and master will be equally in danger as they run for their lives. Those who buy and sell equally in danger. Those who lend and borrow and, and loan and go into debt will be exactly the same as they face their own imminent death at the hands of the fury of Yahweh. All titles, all positions, all pay grades, levels of authority will be over in the uncreation because who cares what your title is when you're running for your life? Verse 3 then gives a summary glimpse of the horrors to come. Look at the text. The earth will surely be laid waste. The earth will surely be plundered for Yahweh has spoken this word. You notice how, how Isaiah says twice that the earth will be utterly or completely laid waste and plundered? That word utterly or completely, that is the strongest Hebrew construction that exists to express certainty and intensity. This is definitely going to happen, and when it does, it will be unlike anything else the world has ever seen, which is what Christ said, you know, about the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21, then there will be a great tribulation such as not become from the beginning of the world until now, nor will it ever be. So the question is why? Why would God do this? Why is he going to do this? I mean, this, this seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? It seems a little over the top. It seems a little extreme, doesn't it, to, to beat the world, the, the pinata of the world and the bat of his wrath, causing global pandemonium and billions to die. How is this okay? It is okay. And it is good. And it is right. And it is just. And the nature of God's holiness and the nature of what sin is makes it infinitely gracious of God that it has not happened. The mocking world for centuries has sneered at God for his seeming silence at the atrocities of history. And the tribulation, you understand, is his reply. It is his answer. It is his breaking the silence with the nuke of his fury. You understand, the world can't have it both ways. Shame on God for his silence. How dare God tell me what to do? Uh, sorry, you can't have the cake of your own sin and eat it in the kingdom. One of those must go. But then verses 4 through 6 give the why. If verses 1 through 3 describe what Yahweh is going to do in the future, verses 4 through 6 explain why he's going to do it and why he's going to do it, no surprise, is because the world and everybody in it is guilty. Look at the text, verses 4 through 6. The earth will moan and writhe. The world will waste away and writhe. The arrogance of the people of the earth will waste away. 
Why? Because the earth is defiled because of those who inhabit it. For they have transgressed the laws. They have defiled the decree. They have shattered the eternal covenant. Therefore, a curse not is, rather it is, will consume the earth. And those who inhabit it are guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth will disappear. And few will be the men who remain. Again, this whole text here is just an ingenious poetic masterpiece. In verse 4, those opening words rhyme in the Hebrew. The world will avala and navala, moan and writhe. The world, he says, will waste away and writhe like an animal gasping for its last breath. The picture here, the groaning here, is the picture done at at a funeral. And the wasting away that he describes uh, is, describes the wilting and scorching of plants under the heat of the sun. This is the death of the world itself. The curse come to fullest expression. The wilting of the world under the scorching heat of the anger of the Almighty. And then verse 4, same exact word. Even the arrogance of man will wilt and die because it's really hard to be arrogant and feel important when you are facing the global terrors of the Almighty. And then verse 5 is the why. Why is this going to happen? Because the earth is defiled because of those who inhabit it. For they have transgressed the laws. They have defiled the decree. They have shattered the eternal covenant. Not just the Jews, but everybody. In other words... The future flood of the fury of the wrath of God unleashed upon the earth is precisely because of the total depravity of man. No one is good. No one is righteous. No one is born a blank slate of moral neutrality who eventually become bad through negative influences. Rather, you and I, we show up to the planet out of our mother's wombs, cute and cuddly to be sure. Some of us more cute and cuddly than others. (laughs) But cute and cuddly though we may be, we were born spiritually dead and slaves to our sin. Therefore, for this reason, verse 6, a curse, a curse will consume the earth. And those who inhabit it are guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the world will disappear. And few will be the men who remain. And there it is, the world is guilty. The world is guilty. Not just for being naughty or or, or breaking a few rules, but because the nature of what sin is, is to take something that's not God and to love it and to worship it and to try to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And that there, right there, that is a crime worthy of a curse. And you know what a curse is, don't you? It is irrevocable wrath and judgment from which there is no escape. That's a curse. And Isaiah says that curse will consume the earth like a hungry wolf devouring its 
prey. It will, it will consume the earth like California fires devour the forest. And when it's all over, few will be the people who remain upon the earth. This is real. This is serious. This is coming in the future. And we would do ourselves a great service. If we just paused here for a moment and considered the fact, the very sober reality that I should be there. I should be there when this goes down. You should be there when this goes down. But if you are in Christ, by the sheer sovereign mercy and intervening grace of the living God, we will never be there. Not for this. And the reason for that is because the tribulation is wrath. And that wrath has already been paid for and appeased by the anger absorbing atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.10, Christ promised the church of Philadelphia, and by extension, he promised it to us. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world, upon all those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly, he says. Because you and I, we were not there for the first creation in the beginning. And by the sheer sovereign mercy and kindness of God, we will not be there for the uncreation at the end. And that doesn't mean we dodge the bullet of persecution. Absolutely not. 2 Timothy 3.12 is clear and honest. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is no stopping the train of persecution that is going to happen. And for those moments, God will give us what we need. But you have to understand that persecution and tribulation are not the same thing. And it's only by the kindness of God that we will not be there to face it. And what this does, you understand, this produces very practical effects in our lives. Very practical, life-changing implications for our lives. Very profoundly practical, which I'll give you before we're done. But first, let's finish what Isaiah says. Notice verses 7 through 13. Isaiah zooms in on the horror. Up close, personal. He shows us the sadness and despair that will fill the uncreation when it goes down. And interestingly, the two prominent themes in verses 7 through 13, get this, are wine and joy, alcohol and gladness. And Isaiah's point is when the uncreation goes down, both of those things will be gone. Verses 7, 8, and 11, all joy will turn to groaning. All joyful music will cease. Verse 11, all the, joy and all the joy will vanish and disappear from the face of the planet. Why? Because with the curse of Yahweh consuming the earth and billions of people dying from war and famines and plagues and unspeakable demonic attacks and cosmic terrors that split the earth in two, there just isn't any justification anymore for cocktail parties and drunken raves. Verses 7, 9, and 11, the wine is non-existent. The vines are dry. The beer is bitter. Look at verse 11. They will wail in the streets because there's no more wine anymore to numb their souls from the pain. Dorms and bars 
frat houses and clubs will be empty and abandoned. The beer taps will be dry. The wine cellars will be empty. The bars, once filled with music, will be silent as the grave. And all of the frivolity and levity and drunken superficiality that we see in our world today will be a distant memory in light of the terrors to come. Verse 13, this is exactly what it's going to be like Isaiah says, in the midst of the earth, in the midst of the peoples, like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleanings when the harvest is over. And we're saying that's a promise and a threat. The earth's population in that day, mark my words, will be so depleted and diminished that it will be like olive trees when it's over. And when it's over, there will only be a few olives left. God did promise that he would never destroy the world through a flood. But he never promised that he wouldn't destroy it in the fires of his wrath. And that's exactly what this is. It's very practical, you understand. It's very practical because this is about real people with real souls. And it is very possible that you know people who will be there. You understand that, right? It's very possible that you know people who will live and die in the tribulation, in the uncreation. And what that does is warrants very real and sober conversations with lost people, doesn't it? It's very practical because this unleashes urgent, compassionate honesty with people who are in rebellion to Jesus Christ. You're just going to have to take the risk and sound like a lunatic. You're just going to have to take the risk and sound like a crazy person. That there's going to come a time of the unmitigated rage and wrath and fury and justice of God. This is real. This is going to happen. And if it is real, we should probably tell people about this. The terrors that will be unleashed his wrath and rage poured out undiluted upon the earth. That warrants a conversation. And that's not a scare tactic to manipulate people. But it is scary. And it is real. And yet, and yet, and yet, in God's gracious providential mercy and kindness, it has not happened which means there is still time to repent and yield to the king in submission and faith because his arms are at least for the time being open and wide and ready to receive them. Which brings us to part two. Part two, the inescapable devastation. The inescapable devastation, the shaking, the splitting, and the staggering of the earth. You see, what Isaiah hints at, Revelation makes clear. There will be believers in the tribulation. There will be believers in the uncreation, as in lost people will get saved in and through the terrors of the tribulation. 
Revelation 7 verse 9 says that a great multitude will come to saving faith in the midst of the tribulation because it seems they understand that the cosmic terrors exploding upon the world are in fact the work, the work of God himself. And verses 14 through 16a, they speak. Or should I say they worship and they shout for joy. Look at the text. They will lift up their voice. They will shout for joy because of the majesty of Yahweh. They will cry aloud from the sea or the west. Therefore, give glory to Yahweh in the east. In the islands of the sea, give glory to the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. For from the edge or from the wing of the earth, we have heard songs which declare glory to the righteous one. Notice there in verse 14, they, they, they will lift up their voice. They will shout for joy. Who is the they? Clearly, it's not the people dying and wailing in the streets. Because these people in that day will worship God, who in his incredible sovereign mercy will have saved them in and through the holocaust of his wrath. And their perspective, their interpretation of what's happening in the world will move them to worship. And two things I want you to notice here in verses 14 through 16. Two things you need to notice. First, notice the activities of these tribulation worshipers. Verse 14, they will lift their voice. They will shout for joy. They will cry aloud. Verse 15, they will glorify Yahweh. They will declare his supremacy. Verse 16, they will sing songs of joy with the chorus of glory to the righteous one. But secondly, notice from where these exhilarated worshipers declare their praise. Did you notice from where they declare their praise? Verse 14, they shout from the sea, literally from the west. Or from the west, but literally from the sea. Verse 15, in the east and way out west in the islands of the sea. Isaiah is just using terms to move further and further out to the planet. To the planet. Verse 16, from the, literally the wing of the earth, which is the furthest logical conceivable end of the planet by Hebrew estimation. Even they will glorify God for the beauty of his righteousness. What is this? What this is is a worldwide chorus from the ends of the earth who will respond in exhilarated worship when they see the earth-shattering power of the living God at the end of the age. And yet you can totally tell, can't you? These are no shotgun conversions here. These people aren't going to Repent and convert only because they don't want to die. No, no, we can tell here that in and through the hell unleashed, they finally see the glory and the beauty of Yahweh. Because again, notice in verse 14, they shout for joy. Why? Because of the majesty, the supremacy of Yahweh. Verse 15, they will glorify him. That, that means to prize him as a treasure. Verse 16, they will sing songs of joy, literally celebrating the beauty of the righteous one. Do you see? And I think this has two implications. Number one, God will save his elect from the ends of the earth. Even if it is down, even if it is the 11th hour, 
even if it is down to the wire, even if it is when the world is covered with fire and blood. Because you understand that before time began, God inscribed the names of all those whom he had chosen from all the nations into the Lamb's book of life. And here we see some of those souls in the future getting saved in and through the flames. I just want you to know, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you don't know him, this text is a gracious, gracious reminder to you that you don't have to and you must not wait until the apocalypse to repent and believe. You don't have to do that. That that literally doesn't make any sense at all. Because should you resist him and fight him and hedge your bets and sit on the fence, and bide your time, and call his bluff, there are two ways that is going to go. One, the tribulation, or number two, your death. The former is hell on earth, and the latter leads to hell. And yet even despite your dragging feet, there the Savior stands. You understand the wounded lamb is summoning sinners to repentance. The great high king offers an ocean of reconciling blood. Can you understand that in Christ alone, that Christ alone solves the deepest dilemma of the universe, which is not racism, it is not AIDS, it is not global starvation, it is how do you get reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul? That's the dilemma. And that dilemma was solved by the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have not done so, now, right now, is the moment to yield in glad-hearted submission and faith. Implication number two. Implication number two, what I also see here in the future worship of the nations in the uncreation, get this, is the true, authentic nature of saving faith. I think what we see here in the text is the authentic nature of true saving faith. Can you see that in the text there? Look at how the nations respond. They prize God's beauty. They treasure God's supremacy. They marvel at God's majesty. Guess what? That is what faith is. That is what it means to be a believer. The nature of authentic saving faith is not just that you intellectually believe that God exists, but that he is a treasure matchless and supreme. That you don't don't have to choose between your satisfaction and God's supremacy because your satisfaction is found precisely in God's supremacy. God knows. God knows his own supremacy shines most brightly in the soul of those who are most satisfied in him. The question is, is that the kind of faith that you possess this morning? A faith that not only believes and accepts the historical facts of the gospel, but a faith that prizes and treasures and delights 
and marvels at the majesty of a God whose worth and beauty are infinite and inexhaustible. Because there's only one way. There's only one way to get that kind of faith. You know what it is. Through the daily rigorous contemplation and meditation upon who God is from the sacred text of Holy Scripture. That is it. And Isaiah can see this. He, he can envision this happening. And although I'm sure he is thrilled by what he sees, thrilled by the, by the, the multilingual chorus coming in the future, that does not mitigate the utter dread and terror that he feels about those in the future who will not repent. Look at verses 16b through 18. Even despite the exhilarated treasuring of God by some in the uncreation, Isaiah says, but I said, I said, woe to me. Woe to me. Alas for me, he says. Why? Those who are treacherous will be treacherous. And the treachery of the treacherous will be treacherous. Terror and a pit and a snare are against you, O inhabitants of the earth. And it will be that the one who escapes from the terror will fall into a pit. And the one who climbs out of the pit will be caught by the snare. For the windows from above will be opened and the foundations of the earth will tremble. Do you see what Isaiah's problem is? He is overwhelmed with grief and sadness at the dread of the vision of the terrors coming in the future. And there he sits, pen in hand, powerless and devastated. So devastated, in fact, that he says, woe to me. Woe to me. Alas for me. This is, this is top level devastation here. Why? Because these are real people with real souls. And he knows that many people in the great tribulation, even when the world will be covered with fire, Revelation 8 verse 7, still will not repent. Look at the end of verse 16. The those who are treacherous will still be treacherous. And the treachery of the treacherous will be treacherous. That, that is devastating. What does that mean? It means that even though the wrath of God will fall like fire from the sky, even though Yahweh will literally be bringing a, a holocaust of wrath upon the earth, so many people will not believe. Believe it or not, many who are treacherous today will still be treacherous in the tribulation. Many who are unrepentant today will remain that way even when the world is coming apart at the seams. And yet, unlike today, when people commit un unspeakable atrocities and somehow get away with it, somehow escape the judgment and the justice that they deserve, it will not be so in the uncreation. In the uncreation, there will be no more escape. Look at verses 17 and 18. Three things, three things are coming in the world in the future. Terror, a pit, and a trap. Almost like, almost like a B-movie horror film or an episode of Roadrunner with Wile E. Coyote. If someone flees from terror, they'll fall into a trap. And if they manage to climb out of the pit, they'll step into a, step into a bear trap. 
order to put it in Revelation terms, if an army doesn't kill him, a plague will. And if a plague doesn't kill him, a hailstone will. And if a hailstone, hailstorm doesn't kill him, the Antichrist will. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to escape exactly like the flood. Look at the end of verse 18. There will be nowhere to hide. Why? For the windows above will be opened and the foundations of the earth will be shaken. What does that sound like to you? Windows above are opened. Foundations below are shaken. That's flood language. Global flood holocaust language coming in the future from which there was no escape. Only in the uncreation. It won't be water that does it. But a whole host of various terrors that will be unleashed upon the earth. This is real. This is coming. This is just. And it deserves a response. It deserves a response. Finally, verses 19 and 20. Isaiah gives a a catastrophic summary. In fact, the most catastrophic summary of the tribulation terrors to come. And to do so, Isaiah uses the most vivid and graphic language to do so. Notice what he says. The earth will surely be shattered. The earth will surely be split. The earth will surely be shaken. The earth will surely be staggered. It will sway like a shack. And the the weight of its iniquity will be heavy upon it. It will fall and it will not rise again. To be honest, I'm not sure how much more of this we can handle this morning. I'm not sure how much more of this we can take. But neither Isaiah nor Yahweh will apologize for what is in the text because we need this. Even if we're not going to be there for this, we need this. We need to see that things will not always go as they go now. That God will intervene after centuries and ages and millenniums of the rage and the immorality and the hatred of mankind for its creator. And God will respond. This is the uncreation. The decreation, the anti-creation, the, the counter-creation, the, the utter desolation of creation as God tears apart the world and lays it naked and bare in the fires of his wrath. And you have to understand, this is not an overreaction. This is not God flying off the handle in a divine hissy fit or some Trinitarian temper tantrum. No, this is the fearsome public display of the holiness of God. Put it this way, unless God does this and brings the hammer of his wrath upon the unrepentant and those who refuse his grace, unless he does this, then very simply, he would refuse to be glorious and he would refuse to be God. And you could totally tell, can't you, how this kind of message, how this kind of theology would produce practical effects produce very clear responses in our lives you could totally tell that this kind of message and this kind of theology is designed to liberate us from entanglements can you see that this liberates us from entanglements entanglements with greed and coveting and materialism from building bigger barns and storing up treasures on the earth This liberates us from lust and pride 
and all the counterfeit pleasures of a fallen world. This, this liberates us. This message frees us from the fear of people and the fear of man and what man can do to us. And instead of that, it unleashes urgent compassion that cannot help but caution and warn and plead with people to repent. This liberates us to give ourselves to Yahweh in radical hope and invincible faith. But we need to see part three. Part three, which I call the incredible restoration, the global glory of the reign of God, the global glory of the reign of God, because both Isaiah and Revelation are clear and unmistakable. Hang on. After the great uncreation, listen carefully, is the recreation. After the great uncreation is the recreation. And you have to understand that the recreation comes in phases or stages or steps. The first stage of the recreation is Revelation 19 when Jesus Christ returns. And with the glory of a thousand splendid sons, he will save his people and slaughter his foes. The next stage of the recreation is Revelation 20, where Jesus Christ will reign upon the earth for a thousand splendid years. And after that, he will banish the prince of darkness to the lake of fire forever. And then final stage of the recreation is the happy ever after of the new creation, Revelation 21 and 22, when he makes a new heavens and a new earth. Follow the order. Tribulation, return, Kingdom, judgment, new creation. That order of events is really important. That's really important because John didn't make that up. He got that from somewhere, and where he got it was Isaiah 24, and in particular, verses 21 through 23. Look at the text, 21 through 23, and remember, remember what you're about to see is reality in the foundation of your hope. Isaiah writes, in, it shall be in that day. And there it is again. That code for prophecy. That signal for the future. In that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. And they will be gathered like prisoners into a dungeon and they will be shut in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished and the moon will be reproached and the sun will be ashamed for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders in glory. And there it is. The return, the revenge, and the reign of Jesus Christ here in the Old Testament. Notice there in verse 21, Yahweh, namely Christ, will arrive, physically arrive to the planet and unleash vengeance on two particular groups. Who are those groups? The host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth. In other words, demons and men, evil angelic beings and evil kings. And guess what? That's exactly what we see at the end of Revelation 19. Do you remember that? After the tribulation, 
The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness known as the beast and ten kings will have united together in a coalition of evil to rule the entire planet. And yet when King Jesus arrives, he will strike them down with the sword of his mouth and trample them down in the winepress of his fury. Does this sound familiar? And then get a load of this. John tells us in Revelation 20 that after Christ arrives, the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, will be seized with ease like the floppy rag doll chump that he is. And he will be locked and sealed in a special dungeon for a thousand years. And then after that, he will be banished to the lake of fire forever. What is the point? The point is this is exactly what Isaiah unfolds. Look at verse 22. Then Yahweh will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on the earth and they will be gathered like prisoners into a dungeon and they will be shut into a prison and after many days they will be punished. Do you see the correlation with Revelation? Locked in a dungeon and after many days like a thousand years worth of days, they will finally be released to receive their final sentence in the lake of fire forever. And you understand Satan and demons, they know this. They know this is coming. They know the text. They know what the plan is. They know what the outcome is. And it fills them with terror and fury. What have we to do with you, son of God? Have you come to destroy us before the time? Revelation 12, 12 says that the devil has great wrath because he knows he only has a little time left. So they're not stupid. They know the text. They believe the text. The question is, do you know and believe the text? Do you believe this? Do you believe that one day evil angels and evil kings will have their day and face their doom? That like Genesis 3.15 told us thousands of years ago that one day a savior would arrive to the earth and crush the head of the serpent. Because you understand, if we, if we believe that and we live in light of that, in light of the return and the revenge and the reign of Jesus Christ, that should produce a very particular set of responses to that. But speaking of the reign of Christ, we're almost done here. Taste and see a glimpse of the kingdom, verse 23. And the moon will be reproached. And the sun will be ashamed. For Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders in glory. Well, that's odd. Why would the sun and moon need to be ashamed? They haven't done anything wrong. They're just inanimate objects. They shouldn't feel ashamed of anything. And yet the point is, the point is, the light they bring will be outshone by the king. They will be ashamed because they will be irrelevant. That the glory and the light that they bring will pale in comparison to the white hot majesty of the king when he reigns from Jerusalem. The sun and moon, Genesis tells us, were created by God to rule the day and the night. But they will be irrelevant. There will be no more place for them because the king himself will rule all things from a throne in Jerusalem. 
This is coming. This is future. It's only a matter of time. And you understand the tribulation, uncreation, and the kingdom recreation after that should produce some very particular responses, two in particular. And with this, I close. There are more responses to that, but here's two responses that we should have to the future wrath and reign of the king. Here they are. Radical hope and invincible faith. That's it. Radical hope and invincible faith. That's the response. Number one. Number one, the future wrath and reign of Christ should unleash in our lives radical hope that despite what we see on the surface sustains our joy, purifies our lives, and radically alters our priorities. Do you have that radical hope this morning? Number two, the wrath and reign of the king unleashes in our lives invincible faith. Invincible faith that conquers temptation, that wars against sin, that perseveres in trial and clings to the promises of God found in his word. Do you have that invincible faith this morning? Because you know, you know that radical hope and invincible faith, do, they do not come from nowhere. They are not self-generated on their own. No, they come, they are found when we have a staggering vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the world in which God will not only break the world, but then he, through his son, he will bring paradise back to the world. That gives us hope. That sustains our faith. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are, thank we are so thankful for weight. We're so thankful for gravity. We're so thankful that you're honest with us and you do tip your hand and reveal what it is to come. And Lord, this is not cheap manipulation. This is not to try to scare people into accepting something and just sheer, for sheer numbers sake. No, this is you being honest with your people, being honest with unbelievers. It's a display of your holiness. It's a glimpse of your glory. It's a revelation of your righteousness. It's a, it's a manifestation of your majesty. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would use both the tribulation terrors and the glories of the kingdom to sustain our souls, to give us that radical hope and invincible faith as we persevere, as we hold on to you in a world filled with terror and despair. May our souls be sustained with joy. We ask you in the name of your matchless son.